The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode number 565 for Sunday, August 9th, 2015. <laughs> Folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we share your cool stuff found. And together, the goal is to learn at least three new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Gazelle at gazelle.com, the place where you can go to sell off all your old used Apple products and turn them right into money right away. And you can also get stuff from them. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. TunnelBear at TunnelBear.com slash MGG. Super simple, super awesome VPN. We'll talk about what that is and why you might want it a little bit later as well. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here <laughs> in Fairfield, Connecticut. John F. Braun. How you doing, John F. Braun? Fantastic. That's good. That makes you better than me today. My, uh, I, I assume it's hay fever. I don't know, some kind of allergy thing going on. But uh, as you've probably already heard, my voice is, is raw today. I'm, I'm trying to keep it in a lower register because at least then it doesn't get all scratchy for all of you. So there we have it. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see how I do. I'm drinking tea and uh, occasionally we'll... Will enjoy a throat lozenge perhaps while you're talking, John, but probably not while I'm talking because I don't want to do that to all of you folks out there. So, how goes it today? Anything exciting happen on your uh, on, in your technology world this week, John? <sighs> I don't know if you call it exciting. Upgraded my Synology. Oh, sweet! You put a new drive in. Yeah, it's still uneven. Right, but, uh, right. We at least as more. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was actually approaching maximum capacity. The uh, they have a little widget that shows the capacity, and I think it was over ninety percent. So it was red. Yes, and that it scared is. me. So, uh, so what kind of drive did you put in it? A bigger one. I I know, but what <laughs> what what brand and and model? Oh, same same class. I don't know any better. Yeah, it, uh, Which uh, is? so there was uh, WD uh, Green. Oh, dude, don't put green drives in your NAS. We have learned hey. this over and over again. That's eh, what's in there and it works. So, uh huh. So I had a two and a two and a half and they don't make the two and a half anymore. So right. now I have a two and a half and a three, which effectively with at least Synology's hybrid rate, they call it. Yep. Means that I now have two and a half. Right. Because with only two drives, you get the it's essentially mirrored, although it's a little bit more than mirrored in that if you took those two drives and put them in a larger Synology, it would actually become part of that Synology hybrid raid and allow you to add other drives and, and do other things. So it's not really mirrored, but it's effectively mirrored for you at this point in time. Yeah. And their process. So the, the recommended process, because you and I were talking about this, but you, the, the recommended process is shut the thing down, yank the drive that, you want to upgrade, which should be the smaller drive, and uh, put in the bigger drive. And when you start the thing up, it, it, it's kind of jarring because then it starts beeping and lights start flashing and you think there's something terribly wrong. And mm -hmm. Not really. The, the only thing I, uh, you know, the, the, I got to say the ease of use of the Synology versus the Drobo is the Synology, you, you kind of 
you have to manually instruct it to recreate the uh, raid array. If you just swap drives, it's like, well, that's bad. <laughs> it, yeah, and it, and it goes in recovery. I mean, it goes in the, the mode that it should, which is like, oh my gosh, a drive failed. You know, let me uh, let me panic about this, and then then you have to manually go in. Whereas, you know, the the drive that I did pull out, um, the two, I replaced the smallest drive in my Drobo. And if you don't know, but the Drobo was just like, yep, there's more storage. Thank you. It's true. The, you let know, build that in. It panicked too when I pulled the old drive out. It was like, yeah, let me rebuild the array. Sure. Um, you know, something's wrong here. And then I. And I don't know if you have to, but I, I let the Drobo do that before I introduce the new drive, though I don't think technically you have to. No. But I, I just like it to finish what it's doing before I you in, know, confuse in fact, it with something else. <laughs> in fact, there's, there's many instances where that would be a bad thing if, if by pulling the drive out, you now reduce the capacity below what you actually have in there. So, you, you, I mean, depending on your scenario, that, that could actually be a really bad thing because it will never actually finish that process with less drives than you have uh, or less storage than you have data out there. But yeah, so Drobo is, and and, it, and this is uh, not a combination of either uh, uh, platform, but it's just how they're built. The Drobo is uh, built to do just the one thing, right? It doesn't matter how many bays you have in there. Um, you just put, you, you know, you put a drive in and it assumes that you want to add that drive to the, the volume that's in there. Uh, and that's great, but that's not always what you want to do. Now, I, uh, of course, in a two bay Synology, there's not a whole lot else that you would want to do. It's probably safe to assume that if you replace a drive, you're going to go ahead and, 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 you know, make that part of your volume. But remember in Synology, it's the same software that's running on the, you know, the four bay units, the, the five bay, the eight bays. When you put it, if let's say you have four drives in your five bay unit, you may put a fifth drive in and decide, hey, I don't want that fifth drive to be part of my volume that the four drives are there for. I might want it to be either a separate disk, which you can totally do and have a separate volume. Or you might say, you know what, I want this fifth drive to sit in there as what they call a hot spare. And it will just sit and wait. And then if and when one of your other active four drives dies, it does the replacement automatically on the fly for you uh, without, I mean, it'll, it'll tell you what it's doing, but you don't have to do anything. You don't have to swap drives or anything. It just, it says, Oh, we have a problem with one. We've got this spare one at the ready and go. So the Synology is more flexible is, is what it comes down to with that. Um, and that's, you know, it's just, it's yeah. sort of the paradigm of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of scary though, because when you go to the point and they have steps on how to do this, when you put in the new drive and you, you, uh, define it as part of this new array well you actually say repair because you're actually telling it to do a repair operation it actually comes up at some point and says um yeah i'm gonna wipe out all the data on this drive are you okay with that and right. like, whoa 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 i just had to make sure it wasn't gonna <laughs> at first i thought it said oh, i'm gonna wipe out everything everywhere and i'm like whoa right. whoa, whoa oh oh okay yeah read carefully before you <laughs> before you agree to those things but yeah it is an interesting process so some folks in the chat room here at macgeekgeb.com slash stream hello um they uh put us uh, put a link in there that we've shared before from backblaze uh, they test a lot of hard drives because that's how they um, create their storage arrays for their online backup. And so they've shared their results. And as far as green drives go, 
Western digital greens tend to have uh, about a, a certain certain numbers, and I think it matches what you have. Have a you know just less than four percent annual failure rate. Seagate greens they're showing as a hundred twenty percent annual failure rate, which means they're failing more than once a year in in right. a NAS scenario. And it really, I, um, at least in my experience, when the NAS reports that the green drives fail, the drives are actually fine. It's just an, an incompatibility with the way the NAS wants to see the drive and how quickly it wants the drive to recover from its own failures. Um, and, and, they, and the green drives just don't do that fast enough. And so the, the NAS says, no, 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 I, I can't deal with this. So be careful putting those green drives in your Drobo, especially because it will blacklist them if there are any problems with them. And then they will never work in that Drobo again, regardless of whether the drive's good or not. It's good stuff. Yeah. Hey, um, I want to do something different today. Uh, uh-huh. I, well, you know, we like to experiment with things a little bit here. Uh, I, I want to talk about our first sponsor, and then I am also going to talk about our second sponsor right away. And I'm curious. We've never done this before this way. We've always spread them out throughout the show. I'm curious what you folks think uh, about doing it this way. We won't always do it this way. We may never do it this way again. In fact, we I haven't even told our sponsors that we're going to do this. It's sort of an experiment. And so one of them or both of them may not be happy with it. And if, in fact, that's the case, then we'll wind up uh, giving them a, a, a make good mention in, in another show, which is absolutely fine because I love uh, these sponsors. I love all our sponsors. So with that, uh, the first sponsor I want to talk about is Gazelle at gazelle.com. Now, these folks at Gazelle have a process for turning your old iOS and lap, Mac laptops uh iOS devices and Mac laptops into cash and they do it really, really efficiently and really fairly. Uh, their customer service, we hear from you folks constantly that their customer service is absolutely stellar. And, and I've experienced it myself. I've sold a lot of things through Gazelle. The way it works, you visit gazelle.com. You can do this while I'm telling you about it and you'll be finished before I finish telling you about it. You go online, you pick what kind of device it is. You know, is it a smartphone? Is it a tablet? Is it a laptop? You drill down a little bit, what model, how big, you know, does it have this feature? Is it, is it, you know, AT&T, is it, a, you know, a Wi-Fi only iPad, whatever those things are, how big does it have engraving? Then they ask, how does it work? You know, is it totally awesome, brand new, fresh out of the box? Does it normal wear and tear or is it really beat up? You answer those questions, they put a price on the screen. At that point, you decide whether you want to move ahead. If you do, that's the point at which you give them your name. And uh, and your address, obviously, and all that good stuff. And then that's it. <clears throat> they send you a box, no charge to you. The box arrives, you put your stuff in it. You send the box back to them, postage paid by them. They get your box, they open it up, they make sure what's in there is what you said was going to be in there. And they send you your money. Send it via PayPal. You don't pay any fees. They can send you a check if you want. They can even send you an Amazon gift card and you get an extra 5% if you do it that way. So if you shop on Amazon, that's a way to really kind of boost things up with, uh, with the way it all works. Sometimes they get stuff in that's in such good quality, they don't want to sell it out the back door in a, you know, in a bulk sale. They put that back up on, they, they refurbish it even further, put that up on their website so you can go and buy used electronics from them. So if you're looking for an older iPhone, this can be a great place to get an unlocked phone, you know, ready to go, 
no commitment to a carrier or a contract, uh, you know, or a payment plan or anything like that. You just buy it from them. You're good to go. You can take it wherever you want. You got to check these folks out. It's gazelle.com. Through the checkout process, you will see uh, an opportunity to tell them where you heard about them. Choose Mac Geek Gab. Everybody's going to be happy. They like to know that these ads work. You get to help us. And we like them to know that these ads work too. So you got to check them out. Gazelle.com. You can sell and buy your old iOS and Mac laptops. It's good stuff. Our second sponsor, John. Tunnel Bear. One of my favorite new apps that I have on my iOS devices. Now, this works on the Mac, too. Tunnelbear.com slash MGG. It is the simplest VPN I've ever used. Now, a VPN uh, is essentially, you know, a um, it's a what was that? What was the right way to say? It? Julie Kuehl's had a great description of it. Uh, it's putting a secure wrapper around your pipe to the internet, wherever you are on that pipe. You could be at home and you want a secure wrapper around it. That's great. Uh, you could be at a public place like a coffee shop or a hotel or uh, any, you know, anywhere that you're out and about. It puts this secure wrapper around it. And that way, whatever network you're on, the people on that network can't see anything that you're doing other than the fact that you're connected to a VPN. Other than that, they can't see a thing because what happens is all of your transactions go securely between, but when I say securely, I mean encrypted between you and the, um, and, and the tunnel bear server. And then from there, that's where you get out on the internet. It's awesome. You've checked out tunnel bear, right, John? Absolutely. And what do you think about it? I mean, it, (laughs) um, I like their graphics. I gotta say, I, well, well that, you know, that's part of it right there. It's, it literally is one click. In fact, I just, uh, you know, I wiped one of my iOS devices clean and I put tunnel bear back on there and I had to re go through the quote unquote setup process for this. I launched tunnel bear. Uh, I logged into my account and I'll talk a little bit about the accounts. Um, but I logged into my account and said, okay, you know, turn it on. And it asked, it said, hey, we want to install this VPN profile. It was one of those iOS dialogues, you know, like the system says somebody's trying to do something. Are you cool with it? I said, yeah. And that was it. That there was no, I didn't have to like go to the settings and do anything. It just I, all right from there. And it just works. And here's the cool thing. I turned on Tunnel Bear and uh, fell asleep. I don't know. I was, I was messing around on my iPad. That was what I wiped out. And um uh, fell asleep in the next morning. I went and picked it up and started using it. I was still connected to tunnel bear. You know, it, it, the, the connection persists across, um, it, you know, sessions with the device. It's not constantly timing out or anything. It just works really, really smoothly. And here's the cool part. They want as little information from you as possible. If you want to read the best privacy policy on the web, you got to go check out tunnel bears, privacy policy, uh, the only thing they want from you is your first name. And that's just so that they can say hello to you. They keep no logs of your usage times or any of your sessions or anywhere you visited or anything like that. They save your total monthly data because that's where their, that's where their, their money comes from. They give you 500 megs a month for free tunnelbearcom slash MGG is where you go. And right from there, you create an account. They want your email address and, uh, and your first name. That's it. And now you've got, well, and you create a password too, but that's, you know, hopefully unique and not identifiable to you, right? 
and uh, you create the account and you're good to go. That's it. And you start using it 500 megs a month. Obviously you hit that limit then they stop you, but you can, you can upgrade. And when you upgrade, you get unlimited and uh, you can do it either on a monthly plan or, you know, an annual plan, depending on your, your choices. Uh, monthly plan is six ninety nine us dollars a month. And the annual plan turns out to be $4 and 16 cents us uh, dollars per, per month because you pay $50 or 49 99 per year. So you got to check it out. This is available for every platform I've tried. So, you know, iOS, uh, Mac, Windows, and they even have an unofficial, but still existent and works, uh, Linux OpenVPN uh, way of setting up and connecting to it too. So you really got to check this out. Tunnelbear.com slash MGG. It's free. So why not check it out? And you're going to start protecting your sessions, especially those when you're out and about at a coffee shop or something like that. Tunnelbear.com slash MGG. And with that, John, let us know what you think, folks, uh, about putting those two ads together. I'm curious how many of you chose to skip through them, how many listened through, how that felt in the flow. Did it, was it too interruptive? All that stuff. Let me know. And now I think it's time to talk about Gary. Don't you think, John? Poor Gary. Pork. It's always poor Gary. Gary says, I emailed you guys in 2012 about my 13 inch 2009 MacBook Pro that got coffee spilled on it. After cleaning out some stuff, I found that I plugged in the charger. Um, the light was amber and then went green after a full charge. Upon hitting the power button, I was greeted with the startup chime. The hard drive spun up and even the keyboard backlight comes on. But sadly, the screen does not light up. I can hit the very uh, little keys where I hear the sounds for adjusting volume and all that stuff. And, uh, and if I randomly hit the wrong keys, it will play the sound indicating that I did something wrong, like the little system, you know, bonk or whatever it is. It says, is it worth plunking down the money for a mini display adapter and plugging it into an external monitor? Or should I take it in for a flat rate repair? And would Apple even have the parts for this dinosaur? Well, first of all, uh, we'll answer the questions in reverse. Apple will definitely have the parts for this. It's not that old, right? It's a 2009 Mac. They they work on these all the time. There's, it's still a very serviceable Mac, uh, both in terms of, of fixing it, but also just using it, right? I mean, it's got right. plenty of CPU and all that stuff. Yep. And having gone down this path, Dave, if if you were to try to fix it yourself, which I I would entertain for this machine, right? Yeah. You could totally, or at yeah, least yeah. I would, but yeah. there is something um, that often fails. So I suspect that the part that is broken in that machine, if you wanted to entertain trying to fix it yourself, is something called the display inverter, which I think is basically a part that does all the voltage conversions up conversion and down conversion uh, to power the display. Um, and you can readily find that. I just searched here and I found a MacBook Pro 15 inch display inverter. Um, for Mac fix it and you could probably get it from other people. So if there was any part that's defective, I would guess that that's probably the most likely candidate if you wanted to try to do it yourself. Well, here's the thing. And, and this is where you can totally take advantage of Apple's policies. You could bring it into the genius bar. They do not charge for diagnostic time. So, uh, unless diagnostic time involves repairing a part to test to see if their diagnosis is correct, right? But you could bring it in 
and they could look at it and say, yeah, dude, it's the inverter. Here's what it'll cost to do it here. Sometimes Apple's price that includes labor is going to be cheaper than what you will pay for that very same part just for the part and shipping from, you know, somebody else like an iFixit or something like that. So, you know, go in knowing what an inverter is going to cost you on this machine from iFixit and see what Apple says. But uh, 15 bucks. <laughs> okay. Well, it, Apple might not. Apple might. Apple's cost might be a little more than that. That's actually really cheap. I didn't expect that. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah. For that specific part. If that's in fact it, then hey, I'd, I'd give it a whirl. Um, totally. But here's here's the thing. You know, you asked if getting a, a mini display adapter would would work. And it will. That that part will actually cost you more than 15 bucks, I think. But you actually probably get a third party one for about that. But here's the thing. Your Mac is going to think that you still have two monitors, right? Just because you can't see what it thinks it's displaying on the monitor. It still thinks it's displaying something on the built in monitor. So if you plug that in. Uh, one of two things is going to be true. Your Mac is either going to be in mirrored mode, which would be ideal because it means that whatever's appearing on the internal display is also appearing on the external display, which means you can get to all of your settings. However, if it's, if the Mac doesn't have itself set in mirrored mode and it has it set in, in extend the desktop mode, then you will not be able to access all of your settings because they will all appear on the other monitor. So there's a couple of options here. Um, the first, uh, well, actually, the, I'll save the, the, I'll save that one. Uh, the fun one would be to get really good with voiceover because people do use Macs. In fact, we have many listeners to this show that use Macs without being able to see their screens at all because they are visually impaired. So this is possible for you to to navigate this screen and, and get to where you need to in system preferences and displays and check the box that says mirrored. So that that could be an interesting exercise. I, I, I've i never done that. But now that we're talking about it, it's kind of like I, I should know how to do this. That would actually be uh, pretty good to know. I know Allison Sheridan over at NoZillaCast at podfeet.com is quite well versed in this, um, quite well versed considering she is a sighted person. But there is a thread over on Stack Exchange in the Apple section talking about how to set the display in mirrored mode uh, from essentially from the command line. And, and that's, uh, that's what you're going to need to do. I think it's going to be the, uh, you know, that, that, that's probably the, the simplest way to do it if you're not already well-versed with uh, the assistive stuff on OS X. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But fun stuff. And and actually, it's not the command line. It's just a keyboard shortcut. It's command F1 or function command F1, and that should put it in mirrored mode for you. So it's actually pretty simple, I think. But still, you know, fun stuff, right, John? Depends on how you define fun. Well, we tend to define it by, you know, <laughs> what, we, what we do here, right? Indeed. Yeah. All right. What do we have next here? We have, well, we'll stay in this kind of old Mac realm and go to John, who, not, um, not you, John, but I, I, my guess is you'll actually have some, some good thoughts on this. But uh, listener John writes, he says, oh, where are we here? Do I have it right? 
Ah, I was looking to bump my. Oh, yeah, right. Of course. I know. I know what we're talking about here. Sorry. A little bit flaked out. This was act. This actually wasn't a, a normal listener question. This was a list. That was a, it was a question just posed to me by a friend of mine. I'm like trying to figure out I'm like, uh, never mind. doesn't matter. He says uh, he has a, a mid 2012 13 inch MacBook Air. He's looking to bump it up to 480 gigs of flash storage or, uh, you know, more than his 120 gigs that, that he's got in the machine. And he's a little concerned about how to do that. Uh, and he's wondering if he should take it in somewhere or if it's possible to do on his own. And so the good news it is, is that it's totally possible to do on your own. Uh, OWC, in fact, sells a perfect kit to do this. It's, they call it their, um, their aura SSD upgrades, a URA. And, um, and the cool part is they come with, uh, you can buy them with the SSD plus the Envoy plus the tools. And uh, what hap- the Envoy is actually an external case for the SSD that you're taking out of your Mac. Of course, it would work for the SSD that they're sending you to, but the idea is you'd want to put that inside your Mac. So the pro- and, and this particular machine, I think there's 10 screws to take off on the bottom but once you take those 10 screws off, the SSD is right in front of you. Uh, so it's really, really simple. You're not peeling off 16 layers. It's probably a 10-minute process in and out, you know, maybe 15 if you go really slowly. And that's what, there's nothing wrong with going really slowly. But take those 10 screws off. Uh, the way I would do it is uh, I would take the 10 screws off, shut the machine down, of course, you know, do the, do the swap, put the new drive in, close it up. Take the old drive, put it in the external case, boot from that, because the internal drive now is blank, format the internal drive, clone that drive over, which you can do with disk utility, and, uh, or you could do carbon copy clone or you know, whatever you want to do, and then, uh, and then you know, boot from the internal drive, eject the external, and you're done. That's, that's the way I do it. And then you get a 480 gig uh, SSD right in there. And I think it's like you know, 270 bucks or something, and that includes the... The whole shooting match, which is cool. Nice. Because when I heard 2012, that is when Apple started to make machines that were less serviceable. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and actually, this specific machine, I, I looked here. Uh, how would I know this? Well, I'm using Mac Tracker. And actually, Mac Tracker says, uh, oh, yeah, this machine, uh, memory slots, none. <laughs> Which means this is one of the, the that that's why I was nervous when I read this at first. I'm like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. And it's like, yes, you can. Yeah, totally. But the RAM, you're, you're th- this is one of the machines where when you get the RAM, whatever you get, you're stuck with. I, I don't think you can easily upgrade the RAM on this one. <laughs> right. No, I don't think you can at all. And, you know, it, it, Brian Monroe in the chat room is saying that I, I recommend doing it backwards that I should put the new SSD in the external case, test it there first, clone everything over, boot from it externally, make sure it works, and then swap it in. And honestly, that's how I would do it. It is an extra step because you're, you're installing that, uh, that other SSD first in the external enclosure and then swapping it to the inside. But you're right. It, it, it is a better way to do it. And anytime I do an SSD upgrade, that's what I do. And then, in fact, I live with my system running from the external for a couple of days just to make sure it's okay before I bother cracking it open and swapping it in. So you're right, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But uh, yeah, it's right now it's uh, for the 480 there. It's 264 with just the bare SSD and then 299 with the SSD and the Envoy case and the two screwdrivers that you will need to get in and out of this thing. And that's from uh, Otherworld Computing, OWC. That's what I said, but we'll put a link in the, in the show notes to that. It's good stuff. Fun. I like doing this stuff. I really like the And they have some great videos at OWC to walk you through this process. And, of course, there's the iFixit instructions, too. It's, uh, you know, it, the fact that we have these easy access to these instructions is the reason that, I've, that frankly, I'm comfortable doing any of this work these days. Otherwise, you know, it's just a guessing game opening it up. But you don't have to guess. It's all good. I think. Right, John? I love it. Cool. All right. Where are we off to now? Let's go to Paul here. Paul, um, Paul has an interesting thing. As always, he says, I have a question about Apple Music family sharing and iTunes accounts. My wife and I each have a Mac, an iPad, and an iPhone. We each have our own iCloud accounts for mail, contacts, and calendars, but share one iTunes ID for all music, iOS, app and Mac app purchases. I'm interested in setting up iCloud music on our devices and would obviously want to set up a family account so that we pay the $14.99 a month for both of us instead of $9.99 a month for each. Here's my question. Given our current iTunes setup that we have the account for purchases and then separate iCloud accounts, what's the best way to set up Apple music? I know I would have to set up family sharing. Would I have to set up family sharing with the purchase iTunes account and both iCloud accounts? If so, how would I do that? Okay. So this is, um, I've been through this process, uh, not for Apple music, but I did it when family sharing came around. So it's the same kind of thing. Now, first of all, uh, the easy thought would be, well, Hey, wait a minute. Why not just buy one Apple music account? You'd have to share playlists, but then you're only paying 10 bucks and, and you can do it. And you can do that with one very notable catch, you can only stream from Apple music to one device per account at a time. And, and we've tested this here at, at the TMO towers. And in fact, that's exactly how it works. So that's probably not going to work for you, but, but I throw it out there just to, to kind of cover all bases. So assuming that you're going to want to do this, you will need separate iTunes store accounts for each of you. But uh, because that's how that's what Apple Music is tied to. However, you don't have to have the same iCloud account and storage account for each user. So right now you have iCloud accounts separate per user and you share one iTunes account going forward. You're going to have separate iCloud accounts per user, as you currently do, and separate iTunes accounts per user. That's correct. Now, for any given user, the iCloud account and the iTunes music account or the iTunes account, I should say, which is for all of your iTunes stuff, do not need to be the same. Right now, my wife has an iCloud account at one email address and her iTunes purchases are at a different one because we kind of were in the same boat that you were for a while. And that works totally fine. Just make sure you keep whatever path you choose. You, you know what you've done and, and continue down that path. So, one of you could and probably should keep your device exactly as it is. So your existing iCloud account and the existing iTunes uh, account that you've been using for all your music and app purchases. And then the other one should change their 
iTunes account to the same as their iCloud account. And then you make a family share with all of that together. And it will, it will trust me, work just fine. It will ask you during the process, here's your iCloud account. You're setting up a family share. What do you want to use for your iTunes account? Is it the same as your iCloud account? Or do you want to use this different thing that you have here? And the answer is no, you, I want to use this different thing. And then it ties it all together and it's, it works brilliantly. So that's, that's the, um, it sounds a little convoluted because it is, but I think you understand how it, uh, how it's all going to work. And then you'll pay your, once you've got all that in place, then you can sign up for a family account with Apple music and you get your 1499. Of course you get three months deferral on the, ever starting to pay that fee. Of course. Makes sense. Did I explain that well, John? I'm not going to try it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You have no reason to try it. That's right. Are you still enjoying Apple music? Yeah, not really. You don't listen to a ton of music. Is that right? Um, no, I thought I listen to music. It's just, I, I don't, uh, I don't know. I listen to pretty much the same old stuff. <laughs> Got it. I'm not, in, I'm not into the whole exploration aspect of, uh, of their, uh, music offering. Dude, I, um, it doesn't do much for me. I'm taking music exploration to a whole other level, um, in about, uh, well, about nine hours from now, I think, uh, I am going to my first country concert this evening. My wife and daughter, I don't actually, I don't hate country music. Uh, it, it, and as, as my lead up to this might have inferred, uh, I've played plenty of it. And, and actually that was the thing that sort of warmed me to it and made me realize that there's actually some cool, really cool stuff with it. And it can be fun. Um, but I've never seen a country act play other than, you know, like little bars in, in Texas and stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, we're going to see Brad Paisley tonight. Which should be fun. He's a, I, I'm, I've told, I've been told he's a great performer. He's a, he's a, you know, rock and roller in terms of his, his, his guitar playing and stuff. So it's probably the right country concert to see, but in their infinite wisdom, my wife and daughter, when they were buying tickets decided, well, if we're going to do this, you know, go big or go home. And so they bought tickets in the pit right up at the, uh, you know, right in front of the stage there. So I will be able to view this through a sea of cowboy hats. I'm sure. Nice. Yeah. So I'll, you're going to wear your hat. I don't own a cowboy hat, my friend. How about, how about boots? Uh, I don't own cowboy boots. No, uh -huh. I own like LL Bean, uh, you know, the snow boots that I use for like snow and mud, but I don't think I'm going to wear them. It's kind of hot out. Huh? So I might be the only guy in the pit with a, uh, without a cowboy hat and, and my, you know, I mean, I probably won't look the part. Let's let's just put it that way. But that's okay. I'm 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 good with it. I, I think they will be too. I'll be a nice guy about it. Yeah, I'll practice your yeehaws. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever they they holler at uh at those sort of events. I wouldn't know. I'm yeah, I, yeah. I'll I'll let you know. I mean, my guess is it's going to be a fantastic show because you know it's. I mean, it's a performer at that level. They're gonna you know they're gonna do stuff. But that you talk about music exploration. This will be interesting this evening. All right. We started the show, John, talking about your disc station and also your Drobo. And we had a question from listener Jay this week. He said, uh, I'm a software engineer. I'm a longtime listener of the show. I've owned a couple Synology disc stations. Most recently, I own a DS212 Plus, which is 
similar to yours in that it is a two bay unit. It's I think it's got less CPU than what you've got, but but you know in that sense it's a two bay unit. Since that purchase, I acquired a Drobo 5D and packed it with five six terabyte NAS drives. I love it. Now my disk station is on a shelf, and I'm contemplating selling it. But I'm curious if either of you are using both and if you have ideas as to how these two could work together in perfect harmony. Dave, I assume you'll tell me to get BitTorrent sync running on my disk station, which is an excellent idea. I've been using Dropbox to sync downloads uh, currently, but I prefer BitTorrent sync. And you're right. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. We do have a, a little caveat about it that I'll come back to. Some background on my current setup, Jake. Jay continues. Currently, I have the Drobo attached to a Mac Mini that is also used as a Plex media server. Uh, the Mini acquires shows and movies, and they auto-process and are indexed by the Plex. For offsite, all my Macs and the Drobo are mirrored to crash plan. I went direct attached for the Drobo with the 5D as opposed to the 5N, specifically for download and media playback performance. I was only unable to download at full speed to the Synology over the network, which is par- partially not a network hard- hardware problem per se. It's just that I have a 300 by 300 synchronous Fios connection. Anyway, I'd love to see uh, a, a regular show or maybe a cool stuff found featuring solutions. Yeah, okay, we'll talk about this. We'll do it right now. Um, in, for, in your setup, Jay, the Synology is extraneous, at least in terms of how I would advise you to use it. And the reason I say it's extraneous is because you've already got a Mac Mini and a Drobo running as what I'll call a hacked together NAS. Now, I don't mean that hacked together term to be uh, negative in any way. In fact, what you're able to do with a Mac mini with lots of storage attached to it, i.e. your Drobo is probably more powerful than what you could do with most Synology units, because you've got this great CPU in the Mac mini, you have OS 10 running on the Mac mini. So lots of flexibility in terms of what you can do with it and all of that stuff. Essentially, you've got a far more powerful NAS setup than you'd probably have with a disk station and certainly more than you would have with the DS212. You already mentioned a couple of things about the DS212 that that sort of uh, slowed you down. And one of those was that you couldn't transfer data to it fast enough. That may be an indication of the uh, speed of the drives that you have in there, but it's probably more of an indication of how much or how little RAM the DS212 has with Synology's the amount of RAM in fact getting up to 4 gigs or beyond is the key to getting really fast network transfers so that's um that's probably what you were running into here so uh, you know I do the same thing with my Synology that you do with your Drobo and Mac Mini uh, I stream all my movies I run Plex I run Video Station I run Audio Station all of that stuff on there it manages my backups like your Mac Mini does and all of that stuff. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of a reason to also use your, your DS212 unless you wanted to run something like Surveillance Station or you know something where you, you're linking to your cameras or, I don't know, other stuff like that. But that's my thoughts on the, on the subject, John. I, I have a direct attached. I have a Gen 3 Drobo direct attached to my disk station via USB 3. And um, I actually use that as some direct connected backups for the disk station itself. So there is a way to use those together. But again, you're kind of already doing that with your Mac Mini. Thoughts on this, John? One thing I like doing, so I have both. And actually, one thing that 
I like to do, Dave, is to have multiple backups of certain things. It's what I will do on occasion. So this is the nice... uh, this is the nice thing about the Synology is that if you run file station, which is kind of like finder, but it's running on the Synology is that when you run file station, you can go uh, to the tools menu and then say mount remote folder. And you can actually mount the Drobo. Um, the network on the Drobo. desktop, right? Yeah. As a, uh, on the desktop, if you will, of the Synology, the Synology and then right. have a direct connection and you may be like, well, why would you want to do that? Well, it's a lot more efficient than using your computer to broker a copy between the two of them. That's very here. Very true. That's right. Yeah. So it's kind of neat. It, it, again, I, I, I do that. So I have a, uh, so, so the Drobo I will store, uh, I have a, a folder full of videos and a folder full of uh, pictures. And on occasion I will copy those over. Actually, I should probably automate that. I'm sure I could. I'm almost certain I can. Yes. Cause Synology somewhere has a uh, automated or, or scheduling feature. So I'm sure I could do that. And I probably should do that. Yeah. You told on a regular it, it, basis. Yep. They have, they have a, a backup. I want to call it backup station in the Synology and it, it might actually be called that. I think it's, I don't know, it's something else, but yeah, it, it, there's a whole thing where you can just set it up to do a bunch of that stuff internally. And of course there, even if that doesn't work for you, you could actually use crash plan. There's, you know, no reason you couldn't. So, yeah. Yeah. So I would say, hey, you know, if uh, at the very least you could use it as a redundant backup of what's on your other uh, devices, I, I wouldn't put it out to pass. That's true. Yeah, you've already got it there. That's right. Yep. 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 Good point, man. Good point. Yep. And All I was right. thinking that when I upgraded the drives in mine, Dave. So now I have this this one sixty gigabyte drive, and I'm like, what 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 do I do with it? <laughs> It's so puny in the grand scheme of things. That's that's what I kicked out of my uh, Drobo, actually. So my Drobo had numerous uh, or multiple terabyte drives and then this one giga, puny little gigabyte drive, which I, of course, change now. But uh, well, what do you do with a you know hundred-something gigabyte drive? Do you throw it away? Yeah, I think, actually, I pulled it. I, I think it was the old drive in my uh, TiVo, <laughs> which I popped in the Drobo temporarily. So, yeah. I guess uh, hook up uh, one of those drive adapters to it, format it, erase it, and then uh, send it off to recycling. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you had data on it that, that matters. I mean, if it was in a an array, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> so. Actually, you're right. Yeah. So it's probably uh, not immediately uh, accessible since, yeah, it was formatted inside. Uh, so I guess it's EXT4 and some wacky thing. Right. Coming out of the Drobo. But still. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, along these lines, uh, Sandra, listener Sandra, has had an issue with um, a direct attached Drobo that uh, kind of brings to light some a thought process that we all need to go through with with things like this. That Now, a, a Drobo, be it direct attached or a network attached drive, uh, as we said before, does a lot of uh, internal management to present these four drives or five drives or however many you know bays you have in there uh, as one volume to your Mac. Even when it's direct connected, there's still a processor inside the Drobo. As John said, it goes through some relay out process. You know, when when you put a new drive in and it does all this stuff, and 
it is easy to forget that all of that great stuff that any direct attached drive does inside it is only part of what that drive um, needs in terms of, of, of maintenance and how it attaches to your Mac. Specifically, what I'm saying is Sandra had a, a problem where she had to pull her Drobo offline and put, put it back online. And the Drobo said, oh, there's some you know corruption. I need to repair it. And it did. And, and it says everything's all good. And no data was lost. And that's good news. But she's still having trouble on her Mac when she connects the Drobo. Because here's the thing. The Drobo only presents a raw volume to your Mac, just like when you have a single external hard drive that you connect to your Mac. It's just a raw volume. Your Mac has to format it. Your Mac puts data out there. And when it, the time comes to do some file system repair, your Mac is the thing that does that for all direct connected drives, even if the drive happens to have more uh, smarts than, say, you know, one versus the other. It doesn't matter. Your Mac sees them all the same. The Mac manages the file system regardless. So if you want to, if you need to repair your Drobo, you know, with disk utility, then disk utility is what you use to repair that. Don't just assume that, well, the Drobo is all green. Everything's good. No, everything's good inside the Drobo with the volume that it's going to present to your Mac. Beyond that, it's up to your Mac to manage and maintain that drive, just like any normal single drive external. Does that make sense? Did I get that right, John? I think so. Cool. Any, any thoughts on that for me so I can get some water? <clears throat> any thoughts on that? No, I don't know if I really have any uh, additional thoughts on that as right. far as the management of drives. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just important to remember the Mac doesn't know or uh, it may know, but it doesn't care what happens beyond that. It's, you know, the file system, it still sees it as, oh, there's, here's a volume. I don't really care what's beyond that. So, yeah, it's important. You want to take us to Chris, John? I could. Sweet. Should I? Yeah, I guess I should. All right. Here's what Chris has to say. Chris says, hi, guys. That's, yeah. um, in iOS mail, Apple provides no means of recovering your space on deleted mails and deleted email chaps. Deleted email attachments. It appears the only answer is to nuke and pave your email account, restart your system, and then add your account back on in order to recover the space. I have gigabytes of supposedly unused space on my iPad and my iPhone. Are you guys aware of any means other than nuke and pave to recover or reclaim this space? Yes! <laughs> um, so here's what you got to do. So I'm almost certain that this setting is not set up properly. So, on your iOS device, if you go to settings, mail, contact, calendars, and then click on the email account, then you click on advanced, you will then see a setting for deleted messages. And also a setting for remove. So it's important that you have both of these settings. So I suspect in this case, one or more of these is not set properly. So you'll see a number of things, mailbox behaviors, and you should have deleted mailbox set to whatever your uh, uh, provider has. It's probably going to be called trash or something similar. Um, 
Then you're going to have something saying, oh, move discarded messages to, and there should be, well, which mailbox should I move discarded messages to? But then here's the part which I'm almost sure is not set, and I, I think this was confirmed. Uh, deleted messages, remove, and there's going to be a time period there. Now, it could be, and I think it was probably set up to never. <laughs> you don't want that because if it's set up to never, then your deleted stuff is never going to go away. Um, my suggestion was get rid of it after a week. That, that sounds like a reasonable time period. I always do a month, but that's because, I, I don't know. You're probably right. I mean, it depends on who you are and how you manage your mail. Maybe a month, maybe a week, maybe never, right? Maybe you, maybe you only want one device managing this stuff, right? That, which, which actually is important. If you set this, absolutely right, if you set this that setting, gets squirrely, yeah, if you set this to a week on your uh, on your iPhone and then on your Mac, you set it to a month. It, guess what? Your phone's going to be deleting those messages from the server after a week. So, you know, your Mac's wish to delete them after a month will never actually come true because no messages will ever get to that point unless you turn your iPhone off. And you know, that's. You know, for the longest time, that's been a concern of mine when people are setting up email and that maybe there is a standard for this, Dave, or there should be. But the thing is, the, the way email is right now, IMAP and, and I guess POP, if you're still using that, which it really shouldn't be. Um, but the way it's, it's set up now is that each client can kind of do its own thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, we've had questions from people saying well, I'm seeing this really bizarre behavior. Uh, like one was, oh my gosh, things are disappearing and, and I didn't do it. Why is this happening? Well, you did kind of do it, or yeah. at least one of your machines is doing it, uh, maybe sneakily behind your back because it's set up to do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the problem multiplies the more uh, clients that you have, you know, especially if you're running iOS and OS 10 and maybe another operating system and they're all accessing the, the same email, email account, there could be a chaos. And, and I wish there was a way to synchronize this behavior among different uh, machines. And there really should be. But I don't think there is. Maybe there is. Maybe there's a spec for it. So well, nobody's implemented I, I mean, it properly. It, it, it depends on who your mail host is. Like with Gmail, it will delete things from the trash after 30 days. So you could set your Mac and your iOS devices to never do any of it and just leave it all up to the server and the server will do it on its thing. Now, you can't configure that on the server. It's just going to go ahead and do it anyway. So uh, but that that is one way of dealing with it. I'm not I'm not convinced we've answered uh, Chris's question here, though, because Chris was asking about, look, you know, these emails are being deleted, but I'm supposed to have all this free storage on my iPad, uh, but I don't. And do we think that that was coming from just the the lack of emails being deleted from it? Or is this a different, is he asking a very different question? I mean, the question we answered is, is quite valid and, and relevant. I'm just wondering if, if perhaps there's this, there's, there's a second question here. Um, there, there may be, but I, I didn't see it explicitly identified here. Now it could be, that when it's hooked up to uh, when the device is hooked up uh, via iTunes and you look at the uh, amount of storage that different things take up, 
Uh, yeah. One of them could be growing out of control or be this, uh, oh, what's the one we all uh, know and love here? Uh, it's kind uh, of a nondescript, uh, is it un- something unknown or other? Yeah. yeah so you see other. other just taking up gigs and gigs and, uh, you know, growing by leaps and bounds. Um, it, that, I didn't read the question that way though. Maybe I should have, I don't know. We, I, we will read it that way. And the thing is, yeah. if, if you start seeing your other space kind of grow out of control, I mean, we've seen a few ways to solve that. Dave, one is sadly to do a restore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that the, it, things get stuck and they don't get discarded properly. So uh, one way to fix that is a restore, which is, you know, unfortunately a time consuming process typically. Yeah. It's not, um, I mean, it's not terrible, but, but yes, it, it takes a little bit of time. Thank and then you. there are, what's the one cleaner that we've uh, recommended in the past? Uh, phone, clean. Cleaners. phone clean phone is clean. the one. Yeah. That I've used and, and it will do some of this stuff for you. And it's, you know, it, it kind of, wipes out all the temp files and stuff. I don't know if it's going to fix this particular problem, but that's the, that's what comes to mind for me is, is phone clean. Um, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. had people say, yeah, that will, uh, that will, if anything, will reduce this other, um, right. It'll be phone clean. Yeah. So yep. give that a spin too. Fun stuff. Hey, um, this show is, uh, is coming to you via a, a new device that I have on my network that I'm, I'm just testing here. And it's the, the Netgear R7500 um, router. They call it the Nighthawk X4 Smart Wi-Fi router is their, their name for it. It is uh, an 802.11ac router. I decided it was time I needed to start checking out other routers that, you know, I'd, I'd sort of gotten tunnel vision on things and, and figured I, I need to, I need to look around a little bit and decide if my tunnel vision is, is, is warranted still. And, um, it, this Netgear, it's a, it's a, a dual band router, right? It's, uh, but got both the 2.4 and, and five gigahertz radios in it. Uh, It'll do 600 megs per second on 2.4 with 802.11n, which means it's got four channels. And in fact, there's four antennas on this thing. Um, it'll do 1,733 megabytes on uh, 802.11ac on the on the 5 gigahertz uh, band. It'll also do 802.11n up on the 5 gigahertz band, of course. But... Um, I, really the reason and I and and I it's it's got great speeds. I mean I I did some speed tests. There's you know, there's always a, a zillion factors that sort of get in the way and 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 um all of that stuff. But it is it it the speeds are exactly what they what they say. I mean it's this thing screams, in fact, uh, when it comes to Wi Fi stuff. It's it's doing some smart stuff. Obviously it has all the beam forming and and all of that stuff, but it it really does some smart network management. And, and that's actually one of the things um, I, I kind of dug into with this is I, I'm a, I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of the third party open source firmware called DDWRT. I mean, open source might be the wrong word for it, but uh, it's freely available. And I believe most of it's open sourced, but uh, it, it, and this router will support DDWRT. I haven't put it on here yet because I wanted to kind of feel out the, the Netgear uh, firmware and, and, and just get kind of get used to it. And it's got some really cool things. Uh, one of them is, and as I mentioned, you know, network management, it's got something that they call dynamic QoS. Uh, QoS is quality of service. And what that means in, in network terms is 
having your router manage the data that flows through it to make sure that the data that you want to flow through it does so even when other things might be asking to use, say, all of the, the bandwidth. So a great example is you get home from a trip and uh, your phone starts, you know, barfing all of its photos up to iCloud, which you want it to do. But you don't necessarily need that to soak up every bit of your upstream and therefore cause everything else to just go really, really slowly, which is exactly what happens. And many of us have seen it. It's especially bad when you've got three or four people that have come back from, you know, a trip. And now all of those devices are just trying to blast all that stuff up. What this does, many routers support this QoS thing, but it's always sort of a moving target because most people don't want to have to think about, okay, well, what is my actual downstream? What's my upstream? How do I manage this QoS thing? And most people just turn it off. So what dynamic QoS does is it does its own internal speed tests of your network, constantly manages things. And then they have a profile that they keep up to date and So the router can constantly update its profile of what apps most people want prioritized and what apps and and what kind of traffic most people want deprioritized. And and these these are these are factors that are decided not just by what network port it's connecting to, but also what service it's connecting to. So it's like, yeah, okay, it's just a normal secure connection. But we know that server is the photo upload server for iCloud. So we're going to go ahead and just ratchet that down a little bit so that the rest of the network isn't negatively impacted by this data that's blazing up. And so we can still do a Skype call like this. So that part's really cool. Um, I, I, it's, it's simple, which is, you know, interesting. And, and you can, you can look deeper and see each device's bandwidth utilization and, and what connections are using them and, and you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, digging a little deeper, John, a lot of people nowadays have traffic limits on their, um, on you know on your on your network connection which which can kind of suck because you know people are always asking how do i manage how do i know when i'm hitting my limit without just checking my isp's um status page all the time and this has not only a traffic counter in it but a traffic limiter so that you can have it either stop sending data when you hit your your cap for the month or give it, have it, or both. You could have it give you a warning as you're approaching the cap. And that warning can come via email. Uh, it can also come when uh, it can, it can start flashing, you know, one of the LEDs on the router so that you just see it as you walk past it. Uh, or you can have it just stop the internet connection when you hit whatever that, that limit is. So that, 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 there's some pretty cool stuff in here. Uh, you know, it supports my favorite dynamic DNS provider, no IP, which is cool. Um, it's got, much easier parental controls than we've seen in other routers too. That it just, there's, there's kind of a, a holistic way of doing it. And you can also put in keywords and topics that you want to block. Um, but it's pretty cool stuff, man. I mean, you know, I get, I get excited about routers. So that's why, I, you know, some people might think I'm crazy, but this is a neck gears. Neck gears got some good stuff out these days. So questions, thoughts, John. Nice. Uh, my thought is that my uh, TP-Link does a lot of that stuff. Your switch. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not managing it for your entire network, like for your internet connection. No. Okay. Right. 
No, but for most of mine, two very different things. Yeah, one your TP is for things internal to your network. This is actually, mm-hmm. you know, they, these would complement each other quite well, I would think, right? Because the yeah. the the router is for your connection to the outside world. Yeah, yeah, because I've been thinking that too. I may uh, want to move away from uh, or try something different from Apple. Well, see, that's the that's sort of why I was starting to dig in here because I, you know, yeah, I'm totally geeky and into my crazy, you know, DDWRT firmware. Um, but most people don't want to have to, it does have a steep learning curve. Right. And, uh, and it's not, I mean, it's not terrible, but there is a learning curve. Whereas this Netgear thing, you can actually be in either basic mode or advanced mode in the, in the web-based UI. Setting it up is really, really simple. And then you can get deeper and geekier as you choose and, and you can go really deep. Uh, you know, there's only a couple of things that this firmware won't do for me that uh, that I miss from or that I even notice from from having the, uh, you know, not using DDWRT. The big one is I have no local DNS, which means I've gotten very accustomed and most routers don't do this uh, as it turns out. But obviously DDWRT does. So if I have a computer that I call, you know, um, uh, Dave's iMac, let's say. I can or a computer, and this is where it's really a problem that I call disk station, right? If I want to connect to my disk station with DDWRT, I can just go into my browser and type the word disk station, or I can type the word, you know, I can type ping disk station, disk station from the terminal, and it finds it because I have local DNS automatically with that. That's one thing that this Netgear router does not have. Uh, the R7500, actually none of them have uh, have local DNS. And frankly, that that's that's one thing and then the other it has a vpn built into it so you can come back to your to your home uh via the you know via the router which is which is awesome it vpn and ipv6 cannot be enabled simultaneously which i find a little odd um i think i understand why but i i think you could sort of say well don't worry about it and and let me do it i, I think it's that the 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 assumption is well if you have ipv6 maybe you don't need the vpn but you still do um so that's one weird thing about the vpn and then the other is the the vpn server software that they've built into the router is not natively supported by ios i think there is a way to get ios working with it but not natively and that's sort of frustrating so so I don't have the VPN enabled right now because I because I'm using IPv6 and it works great with IPv6. By the way, no no trouble at all. So, um, but it's fun and it's easy. You can start out really really easy and not even think about these extra features or extra settings and still get access to all of these features. And then if you want to dig, you can turn on advanced mode and and kind of you know navigate deeper and deeper into the trenches here. It's fun stuff. I like this thing. It's cool. I am uh, pleasantly pleased, if that makes any sense. Mr. Braun, you're killing me today, man. You could be pleasantly unpleased. <laughs> you are quiet on the one day when I really like need breaks with my voice, but it's okay. We're almost, we're almost at the end here. Uh, in fact, we will have Daniel ask, uh, ask a question here and give us a break. Give us both a break simultaneously. Hey guys, this is Daniel. You've uh, featured me before. Um, love the podcast. You guys, keep up the good work. Uh, your your banter is very entertaining. Uh, question today: Firmware password bypass 
is that possible on um, like a fairly new um, MacBook Pro 13-inch running 10.10.2? Couldn't find anything online that would help me. Um, and I know we have the concerns, uh, of course, about uh, legitimate ownership and uh, those sort of things. And so th- that being established, um, is there any way around a firmware password um, that is gotten forgotten, lost, unknown, etc.? Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah, it, you're right. It, I mean, it's this is one of those scenarios where, uh, you know, security protects us from ourselves too, and sometimes protects us so well that we're blocked out of, of something we want to get into. Um, there is a way around the firmware password on Macs. To my knowledge, the only way uh, is to go and visit the Genius Bar and have them do it. They do have a way of resetting it, but uh, they log, obviously, the serial number of the machine and probably take your ID and, and kind of log this event in the system. So if, in fact, it shows up stolen or is already reported stolen, they've got someone they can tie it to and say, OK, this person came in and you know presented themselves with it. Obviously, if it's your machine, then that's not a problem and you're going to be fine. But I, I think that's the only way to do it. Does anybody, John, do you know any other way or does anybody in the chat room know any other way? Uh supposedly on some machines uh if you uh remove the ram that may undo huh the uh firmware password i've read about this mm-hmm. i've never tried it um yeah that, that does sound familiar at some level <sighs> yep yep I think, uh, yeah, but other, other than what you said, you know, I think I even stumbled across it at one point. So, yeah, there's a secret piece of software that only Apple is supposed to have. And, and I think if you look hard enough, you'll find it floating around out there. But, um, yeah, it requires that you, uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they can undo it for you, but you have to absolutely prove that you're the owner of the machine in question. Right, right, right. Which is, I mean, let's face it, that's kind of what we would want. It, even though it, you know, in the moment of, oh, crap, what did I do? You know, we don't necessarily want it right then, but all other times we do. So we kind of have to take it with us then, too. Yep. Hey, um, Jeff wrote in. I mentioned I had a little follow up on on BitTorrent Sync. And Jeff wrote in. He says, uh, you responded to listeners question about syncing folders by recommending BitTorrent Sync. There's no doubt it's a good solution, but uh it does not sync OS 10 file metadata. I've been an ad- avid file tagger since the days you had to use spotlight comments as a makeshift tagging solution. So this means BitTorrent sync is a non-starter for me. And I use ChronoSync and ChronoAgent for all my syncing needs, which works great. You are absolutely right. I tested this with the very latest builds, which I believe are 2.1.1 of BitTorrent sync. And they still don't sync comments even on new uh, you know, I tried adding some comments to an existing file that was there. They didn't sync. I added a new file with some comments. Those also did not sync. So BitTorrent Sync does not sync these comments, at least not not currently. Maybe maybe that will come around. Dropbox, however, does if that if that helps. So yeah, thank you for for that, Jeff. That's it. It's important if it matters to you. So that's the uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's <laughs> for some of us. Be like, oh yeah, I can live without that. Um, not necessarily all of us. 
good stuff. Any uh, anything you want to do here, John? Any last questions or thoughts from uh, from the uh, oh, from the from the agenda or otherwise? Uh, Alex has an interesting point. You want to take it? Uh, I think. Sweet. Oh wait. Oh, you want me to actually take it? Yeah, right. I want you. I do want you to take it. Um, let's see here. Okay, well, this is quite lengthy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess a, a, a tip here from, from Alex. I'll consolidate this here. Um, he just has a commentary. Uh, he wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone on the topic of aging capacitors, aging internal batteries, and thermal paste. Okay, that's good stuff. <laughs> I guess what he's suggesting is that you may want to. So, so the thing is, these are components that can wear out. And I think we've seen this, Dave. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily... Well, I guess he's suggesting you may want to replace some of these things uh, on occasion. I've actually had to do the internal battery thing in the age of uh, when the MacBook Pro actually had uh, an internal battery. And a lot of Macs still do, I think. Or maybe not. Uh, the ones I've peeked into tend to. Uh, the capacitor thing, that's kind of a rough one. So yeah, capacitors can wear out or they can explode <laughs> or degrade. Right. And I think typically uh, when those degrade, it's usually uh, in, the, in the vein of a, a failing power supply. So what happens is the, the capacitor will typically go. So I guess he's suggesting you may want to... Uh, I mean, you may want to replace the capacitors. Mm. You Again, can. in the places where I've seen in the places where I've seen capacitors, Dave, I, I would I would not recommend this for. You're typically talking high voltages when you're talking uh, capacitors. That's so right. I'd be careful about replacing uh, capacitors because they're usually yeah. But when I've seen them fail, they're usually part of a, a power supply or a monitor, and and you typically get some good juice going through those. So. Be careful, ground everything, you know, discharge capacitors <laughs> before working on them because you can get a nasty shock. Totally. Um, I had the capacitors in the, the mixer that we use here, which is actually a um, almost 10 year old mixer at this point. The Mackie Onyx 1220 because it's a firewire mixer um, and I love it. But the power supply flaked out. What was it last? I think it was last right about this time last year, in fact. And um and so I, I actually found this, I think I talked about it on the show, I found this crazy guy that reminded me of the doc from Back to the Future that, uh, here in New Hampshire that totally fixed it. But he just did it by replacing the caps. Um, you know, the, the labor charge was whatever it was. And, and then the, uh, you know, it was like an hour's worth of labor and then like, you know, 68 cents worth of capacitors or something. But it totally solved the problem. So, Yeah. All right. So that's one suggestion. Capacitors. Another is the batteries and yeah, they'll they'll die. All, all batteries die eventually. So if your Mac does happen to have one of those, um, and actually the symptom that we've seen well long long ago, what what would happen actually with some of the earlier Macs is that you wouldn't be able to turn them on anymore because the battery that sensed the uh, the the circuit that sensed when you hit the power button uh, had a battery, and when the battery died, the machine wouldn't wouldn't be able to sense that you said please turn on <laughs> right, right. So that was a that, that was a sign to replace the battery um and finally he's talking uh 
and yeah, I, I get this. I've never had to do this, but you know, especially for older Macs, this could be something you may want to, uh, may want to reexamine is, uh, uh, so things get hot in your computer. And one way to dissipate the heat, especially from the processor, is something called a heat sink. And you, you'll see this. It's typically a piece of metal with uh, fins. And it's used to dissipate the heat. But usually that's not directly bonded to the processor. They typically use something between the heat sink and the processor or whatever component it's trying to cool off called thermal paste. Well, this thermal paste can break down or dry up or flake away um, in the mists of time <laughs> and not do its job anymore. So for older machines, another thing to consider, because the thing is, if, if, uh, you're, if your components are running too hot, your computer uh, will run slower, believe it or not. You know, you may have heard about some computers that actually had liquid cooling. And that's a, the, the thing is, uh, typically uh, processors and, and other things run faster when they're cooler. So conversely, <laughs> if they're hotter, they're going to run slower. And actually, they can actually damage themselves if, uh, if they run too hot. Though most will shut themselves off before they get to the point of, uh, of damaging themselves. But they may not. So right. right. So for people that have the older machines, uh, and yeah, so the, there's a, a guide here as well, and I fix it talking about um, old thermal paste removal, and I guess putting new thermal paste uh, for the machines that still use that that sort of stuff. So good tips for people with the aging machines is, uh, yeah, replace those capacitors, uh, replace that thermal paste, and replace those uh, old dying batteries. The trifecta of, of old, old machine maintenance. That's right. Yeah, well, old electronics, right? It's, I mean, all these principles still apply and, and are, at, at, are at play somewhere in the, uh, in the whole thing. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address that you will send your feedback to. Emails, that is. I don't know about you, but I know where I'm sending my feedback to, Dave, and that's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, 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 no. Listen, folks. It's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Unless you're a premium subscriber, premium MacGeekGab.com is for you. We prioritize the stuff that comes in there because you folks are going a little bit above and beyond. Uh, Some of you actually going quite a bit above and beyond, and we really appreciate that. So um, we... uh, we offer our thanks in a, on a regular basis by by prioritizing your questions. But we do attempt to, and usually succeed at, um, get to everything uh, that comes in to either address because, A, we like helping you. And B, you know, any one question, it doesn't matter who it comes from, can be a real gem and, and get included here on the show. So please do email us. if you. But if you want to call us, that's cool too. 206-666-GEEK, which John is? 4330. That's what I heard. Visit us on mm. Facebook. Visit MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook. That will bring you directly to our awesome Facebook group where we have a killer community growing there. Um, it's, it's already quite big and uh, it's, the, the growth is not stopping. So check us out over there. Uh, MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook is the best way to, to find that. <laughs> Thanks so much to Cashfly for providing all the bandwidth that gets the show from us to you, C-A-C-A-G-F-L-Y dot com. 
course, uh, and if, in our podcast marketplace, the sponsors that we mentioned in this show and in others, Gazelle, as we said earlier on at gazelle.com, TunnelBear at tunnelbear.com slash MGG. Of course, the folks at iMazing at iMazing.com. Smile at smilesoftware.com. Squarespace at uh, squarespace.com slash MGG. Otherworld Computing, which we mentioned during the show, of course. Um, great sponsor that we're happy to have. Barebones Software at barebones.com. And of course, Linda at lynda.com slash MGG. Coupon code MGG gets you 10% off there. John, help me save my throat. You give them some lasting advice today. I'm going to help you save your throat, Dave. So um, what you want to be sure of, folks, here, per our last comment here, is watch your caps, watch your batteries, watch your paste, because you don't want to get caught. We gotcha! Made up.